right, we're going to take a brief break from our series in the book of Exodus to get Who's Your One Month kicked off. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 5. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 5. I have been anxious to preach this message to you, and I have been anxious to see what the Lord might be pleased to do through this month's emphasis. One of the things that I think excited me the most about the mentality of Longview Point people and the possibility of coming to be your pastor months ago now was the idea of mobilizing the membership of our faith family in, in the densely pop populated area of the Mid-South and the impact that God might be pleased to make here and, and in the area through the faithful witness of his people. I want you to understand, and I think, that, I, think this is, I think this is critical, that being a part of the church is, is not about consumerism. In other words, it's, it's not about our gathering together at, at a set place in order that certain needs might be met, although that should be an important part of what we do. When the church gathers, the Word of God ought to be preached. Ministry should be unfolding so that the membership of the faith family is being well-served, well-fed. They're being provided with rest after a week of ministry. They're being equipped for a forthcoming week of ministry. But ultimately, the reason that we gather together on the Lord's Day this way is so that we are ready to go and to be about the work of service. The, the church is not Walmart. The church is a missions outpost where we come to be refreshed and encouraged and readied to go do what God has called us to do. In some ways, what we do on the Lord's Day is really a very small part of who we are as the church. This is just one of seven days that we gather together for, for such a small period of time in the grand scheme of things. The rest of the week that God affords us, we are actively being the church, being of service, being about the business of expanding his kingdom across the street and around the world. And, and I think that the passage we're going to look at this morning gives us a window into the into the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost, which ought to be an encouragement to those of you who are on the fringes. Maybe you're here this morning as a, a broken person, and maybe you've come under the impression that, that, that church people are really people who have it all neatly packed together. I want you to know if that's your impression, you are wrong. And, and I think that it has the potential to be an encouragement to those of you who are always looking around in life and ministry for low-hanging fruit. And I just want you to know that those that may seem so far out of your reach are not so far removed that God cannot save. Amen. So we see all of that in the passage that's before us this morning. Mark 5, beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. 
The Bible says, Then they came to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains. But he had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he asked him, What's your name? And the man answered, My name is Legion, because we are many. And in verse 10, the Bible says, He kept begging him not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and a herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the man who'd been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. That is, they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. Verse 18 says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. But he wouldn't let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Now, isn't that a powerful picture of the power of the gospel? I, I want you to notice first in verses 1 through 5 the demoniac's condition. The condition that we find this man possessed by a legion of demons in, in these first few verses. Look at verse 2. The first phrase there says, as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. Already there are indications that this man is in a desperate condition. First of all, he lives in the tombs. I don't know about you, but I ain't fooling with nobody that lives in the tombs. Here is a man who lives in the cemetery. And the Bible says that as soon as Jesus crosses over the sea and arrives in the region of the Gerasenes, he is met by this man possessed by an unclean spirit. In fact, we learn later that he's possessed by an army of unclean spirits, and he lives in the graveyard. The remainder of verse 3 says no one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the, sna the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. What I'm telling you is that this man was the worst of the worst. 
In fact, I think there is a heightening intensity about the degree of difficulty to the works that Jesus is performing in the gospel of Mark. If you rewind to the beginning of Mark's gospel, and we spent some time in the gospel some weeks back, Jesus first calls his disciples, is tempted, and drives out the first unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and following, Jesus essentially goes to church. And he finds that there's a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue, and he casts out this spirit. There are healings in Capernaum. He forgives and heals a man in chapter 2. When you get to chapter 3, there's a man with a withered hand that Jesus restores health to. In the close of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is on a wind-tossed sea and he stands and says over the creation, peace and be still. And the waves die and the wind lays and the sea becomes as glass. It appears to me at least that with the unfolding of each miracle, there is a greater degree of difficulty. And here in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is faced with a man who has not one unclean spirit, but a multitude of unclean spirits and he is able to save even to the uttermost here is a man who is in the worst of conditions no one in the region of the garrisons or as it's rendered in some of your translations in the region of Gadara would fool with this man he had become so possessed by demons that he could not be bound with shackles or with chains. Here is a man who possesses a supernatural, otherworld kind of strength and is bent on his destruction and the torment of those around him. And yet he's the very man that has an encounter with Jesus that radically changes his life. Verse says always night and day he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones we 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 don't think that we see demon possession in the same way that you see it in the gospel accounts but i i'm i'm inclined to believe that it manifests itself in different ways in our culture i think there's a couple of reasons we'll get to another in a moment while we don't see this kind of demonic activity the way we see it in the scripture but the basic premise that there is something in the sin sick unbeliever that drives him or her to pursue their own destruction and the destruction of those around them is is a shared concept whether it's addiction in our day and age immorality expressed in a variety of different ways or demon possession in Mark chapter 5. The outcome is always the same. An other world capacity for self-destruction. An other world capacity for separating yourself from what we might assume to be natural affections, natural emotions, behaviors that are suitable to human nature. We find ourselves devolving into something that's almost inhumane. That's where we find the Gadarene demoniac in our passage, this man possessed by a legion of of demons. Now, this ought to come as an encouragement to us that Jesus has the power to save to the uttermost, that God's ability to save you from your sin 
is not about your savability. It's about the power of the gospel to redeem. That's what the gospel is about. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, we can so often get our sights focused on low-hanging fruit when it comes to ministry. Uh, I was 12 years in my former pastorate, been here for a few months. Here's the shared blessing that I've enjoyed in both pastorates. In both cases, I was blessed to serve in an area where people wanted to be. In other words, people were moving into the community in our former ministry. They are moving in droves into the community here in the Hernando area. And so what begins to happen is we begin to pick up what I've described here this morning as low-hanging fruit. Church people, good people by our estimation, moving into the area. And we can become so intoxicated with real substantive growth that in reality is more about the movement of population, that we get blind to our own waning confidence in the power of the gospel to save the least of these that are within an arm's reach of the church. And I just want you to know that as you identify your one this month, or maybe as you identify your five this month, or your 50, and you begin to be more aware of opportunities to share the good news of the gospel, that what you're looking for are opportunities. Not opportunities with people who seem like they might be open, opportunities with people who may have church backgrounds, opportunities with people who may be good people, redeemable by your estimation. I'm telling you that God takes special delight in saving the worst of sinners. I hope you know that. And, and I, I want you to know that his arm is not shortened that he may not save from the most desperate scenarios. In the life of every person here this morning, there is someone, there's that crazy relative, there's that person in the neighborhood that you wish had never moved there. Or if you knew they were there, you would have never moved there in the first place. And you've all but washed your hands of them. You said to them, there's no hope. This is how they have been. This is how they will be. My wife has the spiritual gift of mercy. She says, bless their heart. I have the spiritual gift of discernment and prophecy. I say they sorry and they're always going to be sorry. <laughs> and some of, some of you have made the same analysis of people in your life. And I'm just telling you that for those people, it just might be that God stands to get the maximum glory from their salvation. I, I want you to know that as your pastor, it's not like I just woke up one day and matured into this Christian person that I figured it out, that, that all of my life it was all together. I, I come to you from Shady Grove Trailer Park to tell you that God is often pleased to save to the uttermost. So I hope that as you're identifying your one, you think about the sorriest somebody you know and begin to pray that God would intervene in their life and save them powerfully. I'm not telling you it'll always be pretty. There's going to be messes to clean up and consequences to deal with, and that may be the case for years and years. But God is somehow pleased to take the least of these and do the most with their life. He's taken the foolishness of the gospel and chosen to bind the strong and exalt the weak, to confuse the intellectual and exalt what seemed to us to be the foolish. I'm just telling you, God is great to save.
Here is a man who, again, is the most miserable of sinners. This man is the worst of the worst, and yet he is no match for the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, he's changed here by what I'll call a divine confrontation. An encounter with Jesus Christ changes this man for the rest of his life. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Now there's a lot to unpack. Look back to the beginning of, of verse 7, this exchange as it begins to unfold. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Take special note that this demon-possessed man makes an orthodox confession of who Jesus is. In other words, he is theologically correct. Jesus, Son of God, what have I to do with you? Now, this is the battle that we're up against in certain precincts. You, you, you think about the least of these, the worst of the worst, being the most difficult to reach with the gospel, but where we live in all reality, the ones who are most difficult to reach are those who have been inoculated with the gospel. In other words, they've heard enough of and about the gospel that they have been vaccinated against its power. It no longer surprises them. They're no longer astonished at the promise that God so loved the world. He gave his only son in our place that we would not perish, but by believing in him have everlasting life. We're not moved by the idea that on the third day a stone rolled away and a once dead Jesus walked out. When that doesn't move you, that's called being vaccinated against the gospel. Here the demons know full well. I'm just saying to you this morning, you cannot trust your orthodoxy to get you into heaven. What you need is to be born again by the power of the gospel. And when you are, you'll know. The same way the demoniac knows because his life is forever changed by this encounter with Jesus. He says in the remainder of verse 7, I beg you before God, don't torment me, for Jesus had said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, Jesus said it. Jesus said, get out of the man, you unclean spirit. The pastor didn't say it. One of the disciples didn't say it. The church didn't get together and vote on it. Jesus said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The king of kings said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The bright and morning star said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The alpha and the omega, the A to the Z said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The one who by the very force of his word spoke creation into existence said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I want you to know that when Jesus speaks, things begin to happen. And he asked of the man in verse 9, what's your name? And the man responded, my name is Legion because we're many. In other words, it wasn't one demon that lived in this man's body. It was an army of demons. And verse 10 says, he kept begging him not to send them out of the region. 
Not, not don't cast us out, but don't send us out of the region. The devil and his minions have a direct interest in being actively at work where God is doing his greatest work. This may be the primary reason that we don't see in the Western church the kind of demonic activity that's here at play in Mark chapter 5. But because we have become so lukewarm and milk toast in our faith in God, so ineffective, so uninvolved in kingdom work, that there's little demonic interest in what we have going on as churches in the Western world. Here the demon says, don't send us out of this region where the Son of God has come down to do a great and mighty work. I, I, hope, I, I hope as much as, as I take delight in heaven knowing my name, that they know my name in hell. You, you, you remember, you remember when, when there was an effort on the part of a false prophet in the book of Acts to cast out a demon, and the demons jumped on him, and they stripped him off naked, and they said, we know about Paul, and we know about Jesus, but we never heard of you. May, may it be said of the people of Longview Point that not only is our name known in heaven, but that hell trembles at the faithfulness that is found among us. The demon says, don't send us out of this area. Now in verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he, this, is, this may be the best part of the whole passage. And he gave them permission. Some of you have in your mind the idea that there is a battle in the cosmos between good and evil. That the devil is running around doing what he does and Jesus comes along behind him and cleans up the mess. I want you to know that Satan and all of hell is on a short leash with a sovereign God who has promised that only that which serves our good and his glory can unfold in our life. These demons do not move apart from the sovereign permission of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And a herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and drowned there. I heard an old preacher one time say, that's what you call deviled ham. Some of y'all know something about that. <laughs> Verse 14 says, the men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. And the people went to see what had happened. 2,000 pigs ran off into the sea and this man has been changed forever by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ when he saw Jesus from afar even in his broken state he ran and he worshiped him he acknowledges the lordship of Jesus this encounter with Jesus forever changes his life I want you to take special note this morning that because of Jesus there is hope for the worst of sinners there's a third part of our passage that's especially relevant to this month's Who's Your One emphasis. It comes in the remaining verses of our passage, verses 16 and following. In fact, we'll begin in verse 15. But I, I, I want you to track with me here because I think this is good for us. In verse 15, the Bible says, They came to Jesus and they saw the man who'd been demon-possessed by the legion. 
sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Moments ago, we were talking about the worst of the worst, people who are just a mess. I want to... And, and, then, and then we touched on, and here's the two groups that are always in my mind when it comes to gospel advancement. The people who are broken, and, and they may be comfortable in their brokenness, but they know that they're all jacked up, you know? When my lostness, I knew I was a mess. I knew that. Nobody had to really tell me that. I knew I was. I didn't know what to do about it, but I knew that I was a mess. And, and then, there, then there's the lifetime Sunday school crowd. They've always been actively involved in church in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Mom and dad love Jesus. They've kind of just been good old boys and, and, and good old girls. And, and the assumption is that everything is okay because my life's not as bad as the worst of the worst as, as we've described them here. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if, if, if you're not a drug addict, not an adulterer, not a killer, not angry, not violent, not an abuser. Like you can check all of those boxes. And what I want you to know and see this morning is that apart from Jesus, whether you are what we would call characteristically good or characteristically bad, the sentence of death hangs over the good just like the bad apart from Jesus. There, there, there isn't a soul who doesn't need Jesus for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Amen. We've taken Paul's word in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we've used that to encourage ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody sins, and my favorite, nobody's perfect. You know, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but that verse is not meant to inflate our egos in spite of our sinfulness. It's meant to bring us low. That the the most holy person in this room, apart from the saving blood of Jesus, is bound for an eternity in hell. And the only thing that can fix it for you the good or for you the bad is an encounter with Jesus that leaves you sitting, dressed, and in your right mind at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, the eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told them about the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to leave the area. I think there are a lot of times when churches get really close to having a real revival, a real movement of God's Spirit among them, and they begin to realize how costly that experience will be, and they withdraw, and they invite Jesus to leave. 2,000 pigs are expensive. He's cost them already. And and furthermore, if he's done this to him, what's he going to do to us? If this brother starts this far back in the pack, and here he is restored, what will this transformation look like in our own personal experience? Jesus, can you find somewhere else to set up shop and to do your ministry? They invite him to go somewhere else. Now, you, you can reach the low-hanging fruit without discomforting yourself very much. But if you're going to reach the demoniacs of Gadara, it's going to cost you something personally. And it will cost us something as a church. 
You never know what the price is until it comes time to check out. But I want you to know that however it rings up for us, it will ultimately be worth it to see God move powerfully among us in our lives individually and in our lives collectively as a faith family. They invite Jesus to leave. In verse 18, the Bible says as he was getting into the boat. Some of you men will appreciate this observation from Jesus' ministry. It's never an indefinite boat in Jesus' ministry. He always gets into the boat. Some, someone in Jesus' circle had a boat, and they always seemed to be using the same one, which gives strength to my notion that it's better to have a friend with a boat than it is to have a boat yourself. As he was getting into the boat, to somebody else's boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. But he wouldn't let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people. Report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Did you get that? Jesus is getting back into the boat. And the man now forever changed by this encounter with Christ. says, Jesus, can I go where, where, you, where you're going? Can I go with you? It's really a noble request, isn't it? You ever felt that way? A, a few years ago, I was in the office and I happened to walk out uh, from the front of my office to where um, our secretary was seated and, and I, you know, happened to walk in and, and there was someone who came in almost at the same time through the door and she was visibly shaken and, and crying and she'd asked for a key to the sanctuary and it wasn't uncommon that people would come in and they would go into the sanctuary of our church and they would want, want to just be there in solitude and, and to pray but I could, I could tell that she was heartbroken and so I gave her a few minutes to collect herself and went over to see if there were some kind of way that I could pray for her. And, and she, she told me about her, her family situation. By my estimation, the only believer in the family, at least the only faithful believer in the family, a husband who may not have made things as pleasant for her as he could have, and children who didn't help the situation either. One of the sweetest ladies I've, I've ever known. I could call her today, and she'd be apt to call me if there were an emergency in her life. And she, she said to me through tears, Brother Wade, I just, I just wish that I could just go away and be with Jesus. She didn't mean she was suicidal or she had some kind of death wish. She just wished for an environment that was conducive to godliness. To just be near Jesus without hindrance. Without anything in her life that, that could steal her joy of being near Jesus there. You know what I mean? You've felt like that before, haven't you? I, I, I would suggest to you that that's one of many things that makes the promise of heaven that much sweeter for us. But I, I, just, I just want you to think for a moment about what a common experience that is, to wish that God would just take us away and let us be where we are unencumbered by life, Maybe the things that we've done. Don't you know that the Gadarene demoniac wanted to get away from his reputation? Don't you know that he wanted to get away from the skeletons in his closet? I, I remember when I believed God was calling me to ministry. And I thought initially, and I've shared this with you before. I thought initially 
that God had called me to international missions, and I thought, well, thank God that I'm, I'm going to move to the other side of the world. Surely that's what God's plan is for me. And, and I can get away from all of the baggage and the things that I've done and the mistakes that I've made and the brain-dead decisions and even family, frankly, and just start all over again. Just go be somewhere where I'm unencumbered by the past and be with Jesus. God called me. Um, I grew up in, in Starfield. When God called me to my first ministry position, I was a student pastor for one year. 365 days. I tell people I served a five-year sentence as a youth minister one year. <laughs> he, he called me to a church that was about 20 miles from where I grew up. And I thought, well, this is a start in the right direction. Maybe we'll just get incrementally further from home. And the next ministry position that God called me to was about 12 miles from home. I got closer than I'd been before. But at least because of the geography of the area, there was the feeling of distance. And then it began to be clear for us that God was doing something different in our life. And I thought, this, this is going to be the time, the transition for our family when God sends us away. And just to be Judgment Day honest with you, I sent resumes to every church I could find that was 500 miles or further away from my hometown. And God called me to Matheston, Mississippi, which is a bedroom community to Starkville, my, my hometown. And I, I finally came to terms with the fact that for me, and this is true for many of you as well, the, call, the primary call of God for us is not around the world, but to go across the street and to face down the demons, to, to, to bear with the skeletons in the closet, to face down reputations that were long established, and to bear witness to the power of the gospel to save in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. Jesus commissions this de de once demon-possessed man to go back into Gadara, to go back to the Decapolis, the area that surrounded the region of the Gerasenes, and to tell them how much the Lord had done for him and how he'd had mercy on his soul. Now, even for those of you who have the distinct call to take and plant your life on the other side of the world, you are not yet dismissed from this kind of calling or commission. You are always and forever to go into your surrounding area and to tell people how good God has been to you, to go back to your community, to face the skeletons, and to testify to the grace that Jesus Christ has shown each of us. And oh, hasn't he been good? Oh, yes, he has. I still run into folks from time to time. I, I was, we were back at our old house. I was back at our old house. In fact, we were all down a couple of weeks ago, and I ran into town to pick up some pizzas. We were there cleaning up and getting everything all set for an open house, uh, at that time still selling our old house. And I, I ran into a guy that I used to work with at Domino's picking up the pizza. And we talked and shared, and he loves Jesus. And as we prepared to part ways and go back to what the rest of the day held, he said, I still can't believe you're a preacher. And I said, amen to that, because I, 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 share, I share your feeling. And, 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 for, and for each of you who have been touched by the power of the gospel, the contrast in your life is no less stark. 
what God has done for you is truly miraculous. It's worth talking about. It's worth testifying to for the sake of broken people and for the glory of Jesus' name. Tell others what Jesus has done for you. We're going to have a time of invitation in just a moment. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And I want you to know that every person here has an assignment. There there shouldn't be a soul among us who's not actively responding to what we've discussed over the last several minutes. If you're here as a believer, confidently situated in your faith in Jesus, bold in your convictions, your action items for the next few minutes are to begin to think through, to pray about and identify people in your life that you might take the gospel to over the next weeks, over the next month. There might, there might be many of them. There are going to be some of you who struggle to identify lost people in your life because the tendency, because of this natural, spiritual, and sometimes positive desire to be where Jesus is, unencumbered by our past and other circumstances, we insulate ourselves against the lost world. And I realize that there are times when there's value in that. But I want you to know that Jesus has called us to be salt and light, to go where there's a need for preservation, to go where there is real darkness, and to to scare it away through the light that lives in us through Jesus Christ. Some of you are going to struggle through that. And you're going to have to pray first this week, Lord, help me to build relationships in my life with people who don't share my convictions, who don't believe in the gospel, who don't, who, who don't love you. Help me meet someone this week that needs to know Jesus as the Lord of their life. That's, that's going to be the way you have to pray. That may be your one this morning. He may be anonymous for you. But you can begin this morning praying that God would lead you in the direction of those kinds of folks in your your life. And then there may be some of you who are demon-possessed men and women from the region of Gadara. There are probably some of you who are those we have characterized as good, but who have not had an encounter with Jesus that has forever changed your life. And and I I want you to know that before you join with the work of God, you must be joined with the Spirit of God by faith in Jesus. That you must know Him by faith. And I want you to know that He's faithful. That He's a good God. That He loves His people. That He always does what is right. He's the one stable force in my life. he's, He's a good God to entrust your soul to. And he's the only source of forgiveness and grace and mercy. He's the only one that can resurrect your mess. And I hope that you'll pray. and Ask that Jesus would save you of your sin, that you'd receive him as Savior even this morning. The Bible says that for as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God.